Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. And today we'll be talking to Jeanette Fregulia about her new book, A Rich and Tantalizing Brew, A History of How Coffee Connected the World. Jeanette is Associate Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at Carroll College in Helena, Montana. Jeanette's research focuses on merchants and material, cultural, and social exchanges between early modern Italy and the Eastern Mediterranean, as well as on the role of gender in the history of Mediterranean exchanges. In addition to a PhD in Renaissance Italian history, she also holds a master's degree in Middle East Area Studies from the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies and continues to actively pursue research in the history of the Middle East and Islam. Jeanette Fregulia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Excellent. So Jeanette, let's start with some background. Um, Where did this project begin and what drew you to the study of food history? Uh, a lot of this project began actually with the history of chocolate, interestingly enough. I was asked to do a guest lecture for some prospective students, and I didn't want to talk about the kind of usual things I talk about with my students. Instead, I was looking to sort of engage them in something closer to their hearts. And so I sort of stumbled upon chocolate. And from there, I started to think a lot more about food and about foodways, and this brought me to my other addiction, which is coffee, and then we were off. What about your interest in kind of Italy and Middle Eastern cultures and studies? That's interesting. Yeah. I uh, Well, my family is of Italian extraction, so my great-grandparents immigrated here from the northern parts of Italy, and so I have that attachment, and I, I spent a lot of time there. And then when I went off to get my master's degree at the University of London, I developed this kind of, this, I had an interest in the Middle East before I went, but the opportunity to study there led me in travels to first to Pakistan and then later on to other parts of the Middle East. And so I have a certain affinity. And what's interesting is that all of these are Mediterranean cultures and they have 
both more and less in common than you would think sharing a geographic space. Right. So even though they, we sort of artificially separate East from West, you really point out in the in the book how much the Mediterranean Sea kind of brings all of these cultures together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that sort of really and that's always really fascinated me. So coffee became the vehicle by which to explore so many of these affinities. Right. So you d- you divide the discussion in the book into geographic movements, and that's sort of explained by the trade history um, but also social and cultural movements. So how does coffee move from a medicine to a part of religious rituals to something that you drink at home to something that you drink in public? Um, so let's maybe start with those geographic movements. Where does coffee originate? The science or the archaeology suggests that the coffee plant is native to the highlands of Ethiopia, the highlands of present-day Ethiopia. and. So that's kind of where I started my story. It's also where one of the earlier legend comes from. However, what we know is that even before the first kind of legendary beginnings of coffee, and it grew wild millennia ago, that in the early part of the 6th century, it the coffee plants traveled with the Ethiopians when they invaded Yemen. And so people were certainly enjoying coffee long before these legends kind of came into being. Yeah, you talk about those legends as kind of serving social purposes. What are some of those myths and, and why do they exist? On some level, I think they're about who gets to own coffee. So on some level, it's a claim of kind of ownership and where the, the origins of where coffee happened, but also not just on a sort of um, economic sense, but also this beverage is loved by people all over the world. And so to kind of, I think we're all sort of interested in origin stories. My students are fascinated by origin stories. And so coffee's origin story is really these legends that give people an opportunity to kind of think about their identity and what is our connection to this product that is loved all over the world. Yeah. Will you tell us one of those mythical origin stories? <laughs> I can't. Okay, I can. I, you know, everybody <laughs> kind of knows the story of Caldi, the goat herd, who saw his goats hopping around, right? And ate the berries. So I have another one that I actually almost sort of um, prefer, although this place, this is Yemen. Uh, a priest in Yemen had an un, unwelcome advances towards the daughter of the king. And so the king banished him. And he survived by eating coffee beans and he decided those weren't really very good. And so he figured out about uh, soaking them in water and then drinking the water. So okay. that's one of my personal <laughs> favorites. And then he survived and he went back and it, people were just, oh, how wonderful. <laughs> I guess you could live on coffee alone. I guess you, really you tried. <laughs> you may not want to, but... So describe the the movements next. So it moves from Ethiopia into Yemen uh, through that kind of military movement. But then what? Then the coffee plants actually stay there. They kind of stay in Ethiopia and Yemen. The coffee beans start to travel. And certainly by then, by the early part of the 6th century, 1511, yeah, coffee, let me go back, sorry. Um, (laughs) Coffee... So then the co- so coffee and the coffee beans travel. So the drink for a private pleasure, it becomes very popular with the Sufis who use it to stay awake during their nocturnal rituals. 
etc. But Yemen and and certainly Ethiopia, but definitely Yemen maintains a monopoly on the coffee plants because it's very lucrative until sometime in the 1600s, when yet another legend, I might add, suggests that they were smuggled out with a Portuguese trader from the port of Mocha in Yemen. And then they became part of the European colonial enterprise. And they kind of traveled to everywhere that the British, the Portuguese, etc., had colonies. But they did a good job of hanging on to the trade for quite a while. Right. The, the story of coffee, as you tell it, it has so much in common, you say, with chocolate, sugar, tea, olives, pomegranates, pepper, all of those kind of come up uh, throughout the book as analogs. So what about coffee's movement or, or acceptance is just like any other food stuff? And what about it is unique? I, I don't, I mean, it is and it isn't. So we don't want to completely privilege coffee and dehistoricize it and say that it has nothing to do with olives and pomegranates and all these other sort of wonderful products. But coffee, and, and to a large extent, tea, particularly in, in Britain, became a movement around which people changed how they behaved in public, how, changed how they socialized, it changed how they thought about what was acceptable in public space. And I think that that's a really, I think in many ways, that's really unique to coffee. People generally do not gather over a pomegranate, but certainly we will sit down in a coffee house at the slightest provocation over a coffee. And so I think that it's that social element of coffee that makes it unique among all of the things with which it traveled. Yeah. What are some of those other similarities that you bring up between those other fruits though? They're part of, and I, you know, I hate to use, you know, exotic, except that the people of the day, right, in, in the early modern, pre-modern world, they used the term exotic. Um, coffee was part of that Renaissance, early modern desire to acquire as many kind of cool products as you possibly could as a sign of your wealth, a sign of your worldliness, your affluence, you know, all of this sort of thing. So coffee joined that world of not just unusual spices and new fruits and vegetables, et cetera, but also the stories about travelers. There's this whole world of sort of, I call it global consumption, that coffee fits in so nicely with things people wanted to have. That makes sense. Uh, You talk about how coffee is universally gross the first time that you have it. (laughs) For many people, yeah. So I, myself, I first experimented with uh, coffee in the church vestibule as a kid, and I had to put in a lot of cold water and milk and a whole bunch of sugar to be able to drink it. Uh, how How did early coffee drinkers from Ethiopia to Europe come to accept coffee? How did they work with or against that taste of bitterness? You know, when I set out to write my book, I, I pondered that question a lot. And so I found some relief for my concerns in the chemistry department at my local institution where I teach. And what they explained is that our reaction to especially bitter flavors is in our DNA. It's everybody has a different number of taste receptors and there's a bunch of them for bitter. So people taste bitter things differently and some people not at all. And so I wouldn't want to say that in Ethiopia and Yemen in the early places where coffee was that they had they didn't taste it as bitter. I, I suspect they did, but it just wasn't off-putting. 
Europeans, on the other hand, this was like nothing they had ever had before. And they must have had really active taste receptors. And so I think at first what happened was coffee was this luxury good. It was something that everybody wanted to enjoy and have simply because they could say they had it. And they had to kind of put aside that initial aversion to the bitterness of coffee. And then after that, they discovered they could sweeten it with sugar and put milk in it. And that has made it so much more tolerable for so many people. Yeah, one of the things that you write about in the book that I found so fascinating was the way that literature preceded coffee um, and sort of let people know before coffee beans arrived what they should be doing with it. But not only how to prepare it, but what it meant to drink coffee. Um, yeah. So tell us a little bit about those texts. What Which texts are you looking at? Um, and what did readers learn about coffee from them? What they learned, and so the early, as near as we know, it was a German physician who had the first written, first European to write about coffee. And he wanted, he traveled to the East, um, to the Levant, and he was served coffee and his description, they drink it black as night and hot as they can stand it. And this became a recurring sort of theme of all of these travelers after that came and sort of described coffee the same way, black as ink, hot as they can stand it, served in little tiny china cups, and the coffee house. And so then some of these writers would write about the life of the coffee house and men gathering in, in the coffee house. And so these stories became, I think they piqued the interest of Europeans who consumed these stories. Most people would never travel. They would never get that far from home. And so they consumed these stories. And when the beans arrived, it wasn't completely foreign. It wasn't any less fascinating, but they kind of knew what to do because these travelers had described how they roast them beans and they grind them and they drink it in these tiny cups and you have to have it really hot, etc. So they created a, a place. They created a reception for coffee before it arrived. What did those texts tell them about the social meaning of coffee consumption? That's an interesting question. Um, A, that it was mostly social. I'm I'm sure they knew that people drank it in private as well, but that this was something, and it was something that men did, and they were sort of very clear. So in and amongst these stories about men who gathered at the coffee house, legends grew up that other unseemly things went on in the coffee house and that there was opium and which is largely untrue and that there were no women this was a place for men only and so then there started to be some of this curiosity about what was going on with women and then they started to look at women that were veiled etc and so it became this kind of um oh what's the word i want almost this a date a kind of seductive or dangerous place, the interior of these coffee houses and what was really going on. And probably a little bit of the untoward, but also a place where men could gather where there were not any women. And one of the one of the comments that I make in my book is that it could be that the coffee house arose in the East because men were just looking for some place to go that was outside the home where they could socialize and not be confined by when their friends came over, if they had to worry about their wives and their and their daughters, and so 
And I think that that was really, that was very, also the people would socialize over food and drink, or drink anyway, in public in something that wasn't a tavern had to have absolutely fascinated these travelers because Europeans at this time just did not dine really outside the home or outside of someone's private home. The idea of going to a cafe was completely unknown. So it would have been quite a shock in a good way. Right. Um, So on the subject of these sort of textual sources that you're looking at, uh, you write in the introduction of the book that you're really purposefully decentering the story of the coffee house as a European invention or um, or that the story that we've been told is kind of influenced by Orientalism so that we really only care about the Eastern origin of a thing because it's found full fruition um, in Western culture. So what did that mean to you in terms of your method or your research or the kinds of sources or archives that you were looking at? The whole idea of this actually goes back to when I was traveling, you know, when I was first doing research for other, actually other things in the Middle East and the sort of what goes on in the coffee house became really interesting because as a woman, I was not universally welcome everywhere. There was, there's a great coffee shop in uh, Meknes, Morocco, where I taught one summer that is predominantly for women and, and men are, can go in, but they're looked with some sort of suspicion. So I started to wonder what on earth is going on and why is it that we in the West believe that this is our, I hate to say invention, but this is our kind of our thing. And I thought, oh, no, no, no. We were finding ways to safely, I would argue Europeans were looking for ways to kind of safely appropriate a habit that came from the East. And in doing that, then they started to serve food and then it was open to men and women, etc. But I just didn't see how we could ever take credit for this institution. And so that got me started on a spending time in coffee houses but also looking at traveler narratives trying to find sources from the east that those are harder to find um that would try to help me get a handle on how these really were important parts of social culture and they remain that way men still gather in coffee houses to exchange the news and and watch you know a soccer game and by and large you will still find mostly men so that's kind of how the whole thing got started and after that there became this kind of preponderance of evidence to suggest that as much as we would like to we can't take credit right (laughs) (laughs) what are some of those uh what were some of those primary texts that are sort of eastern from that kind of point of view that you think are are most interesting those are mostly interestingly enough um stories from there's a great story about a, a religious leader in Mecca in 1511 who tried unsuccessfully to close down a coffee house because men were gathered there and he claimed that they were neglecting their prayers. What um, the report seems to suggest is that, in fact, they were talking, you know, being disrespectful in their comments about him. Uh, it was a completely unsuccessful. So there's stories like that. There's a story from an Ottoman scholar called Celebi, and he writes about the coffee house and the origins of the, and what kind of goes on and how important they are. And then Ottoman legal documents as well, of people trying to, again, close down the coffee houses for what they believe for the activities going on. So those are kind of some of the more Eastern sources that I've been able to unearth. 
Uh, so let's talk more about that social movement of coffee. So you describe it as beginning as uh, a medicine and then making other movements. So describe some of that that movement. The, the medicinal stories, I think, are actually kind of really, really interesting. So I think it's Ibn Sina who writes you know, in the 10th century, and he wrote the first book on pharmacology. So in his Canon of Medicine, he talks about coffee being good for the stomach if you're not feeling well, which I find very strange because if my stomach was off, the last thing I think I would want is a coffee. Right. But <laughs> he did write it being very good for that and also good for people with jittery nerves. So I'm not sure about that. <laughs> so initially people, I think, saw it as one of two things. It was medicinal, which is on some level, yes, it may not cure nerves, but it certainly does help us get through the day. And the Sufi mystics who used it in their religious practices. And so I think from there, it was just a kind of a seepage, right? It's like, okay, well, if coffee is good for medicine and it's pleasing to, you know, it helps us be pleasing to God, then, and we drink it at home, why not? And then people, and here's what I think happened actually, is that then people would you know, they'd have it at home and they would invite people over. And then maybe I'm speculating here. I don't know for sure. Somebody got a reputation for making really good coffee. So people would start to gather maybe at this person's home or at their shop. And it kind of grew, I think, from there until we had the full fledged institution of the coffee house and men looking for some place to go to socialize. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Right. Let's talk a little bit more about the idea of uh, consuming coffee as a product of this imperialism or Orientalism. Um, You link it to this general acquisitiveness of uh, the early modern Europeans. Uh, In the book you write, they consumed the East in new forms of art and architecture in the pages of travel narratives, with the collection of artifacts, and in luxurious adornments of the body. So what role did, or, or maybe still does, uh, coffee play in the social status for individuals and in maybe some racist ideologies? That's a really good question. I, what I think that most people don't realize are traveling European friends. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to phrase this in a way that's cogent. Our traveling merchants were very, very interested in what Stephen Greenblatt calls the world of the marvelous. And coffee was part of that, along with pseudo-Kufic script. If you look at um, any number of Renaissance paintings, 
you'll see this sort of pseudo Kufic Arabic script. It doesn't mean anything, but it's there because the artist thought it looked great and it looked kind of exotic. And people thought this was fantastic, along with different kinds of jewelry, etc. And the way that these travel narratives presented the East was that it was, you know, both dangerous and fascinating. So like, yes, you should go there, but you need to be aware that you're going to meet people that are very different from you. And they practice a faith that is very, very different. But it's also really, really compelling. And a lot of them actually set off. And I probably should have said this before. Many of them set off to do a pilgrimage, say, to Jerusalem, which was a very popular form of travel all throughout the, well, it still is. And so if I guess they thought, if I'm going all the way to Jerusalem, I might as well stop in Aleppo and see what's going on. So in all of these kinds of ways, Europe was, and Europe was looking for ways to understand the East and to bring it home, but in a way that was not quite so dangerous and scary for them. So I think that all of this, and to have the stuff from the East was not importing the people or the ideas, but it was bringing home this sort of material culture or this tangible evidence of people who live very, very differently from ourselves. But they talked about them in all kinds of horrible ways. The, the savages, that's one of my personal favorites, right? These people were just a little bit savage. They were just a little bit uh, one of the travel narratives, this is kind of great, talks about how, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about the people. They're a little bit strange. They have a strange religion, but they love to bathe. So somehow these people who they thought of as less than them, they did bathe. And that was somehow good. Right. Because Europeans weren't really bathing. <laughs> so, I don't know. I thought that was kind of an interesting um I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, so that question comes for me from, you know, Lisa Heldke's book, uh, Exotic Appetites, and that idea of culinary colonialism, which is sort of building this European identity out of the raw materials that you can take from the cuisines of others. Um, is that Does that kind of explain to you what you think was happening uh, at the time? And does that say anything about how we drink coffee now? I think that that's what prompted that Portuguese merchant, if that story is true, to steal the coffee plants, right? I, it's how can we grow these? How can we have this in other places? And so in essence, make it a tool of our own imperialism. And that's exactly what happened. It ended up in India, islands in the Pacific, you know, we know all over Central and South America. And so, yeah, I think absolutely. In fact, I loved, I love Helke's book. I think it's just fantastic. Um, yes, students yeah. like it too. Yes, absolutely do. And I, it becomes part of, what is the word she uses, Colon the colonial discourse, right? Mm -hmm. These coffee mm -hmm. plants do. And for, I think for, uh, I have students who honestly do not realize that coffee originated in Ethiopia and Yemen. They think it all comes from Colombia, which is fine. Except I said, oh no, you have to understand how these, and people were looking for, a, and also they saw that, you know, Yemen had, that it was very, very, very lucrative, but it was dangerous to get there and it was expensive. So how do we take this lucrative product that everybody seems to like, or at least pretends to like, and make it more accessible and turn it into a profit for us? 
And ultimately what happens is that when Yemen loses the monopoly, excuse me, on coffee, and it's a real blow to their economy. Yeah, one of the other things that the, kind of the most interesting claims about your book uh, is that refutation of the idea that the public sphere, as defined by Habermas, emerged in Europe in the coffee houses, that like Eastern coffee houses weren't public spheres, um, but that the coffee house as a public space um, predates that, that you argue in the book. Um, and that's something I had always heard kind of with skepticism. Uh, I've heard that story too, like the enlightenment couldn't have happened except that we all stopped drinking wine all day and drink tea and coffee instead. Right. No. <laughs> Where does that idea come from? And maybe help us go through the evidence of what you found to refute that claim. Okay. Um, Cause I struggled with how could it's, it's sort of what you just said. How could people not recognize that the coffee house was a public space long before it ended up in enlightenment Europe. And um, Katip Celebi actually talks about this. Um, in some of his writings, he was an Ottoman scholar, how, and I believe he uses the word public space to define the coffee houses of Istanbul, that these are where people go to contract business, to gossip, to hear the news of the day, maybe to arrange a marriage. I don't think he uses marriage as an example, but it's that kind of thing. And he talks about how it very much is the creation of a public space or a public sphere. And that led me to thinking, how is it that the Europeans thought, oh, no, we needed, you know, this is something that we just decided one day was great for the creation of our own public sphere. That's not very articulate, but you get the idea. So then there was simply nothing like it in Europe. So it had to have been a transplant. People did not wake up one morning and just say, I think I'll have a coffee house today. I mean, people generally just don't do that. It just don't spring up out of nowhere. But what I think happened was people didn't give any thought. I don't think it was a necessarily malicious or anything. I don't think people gave any thought to what are the origins of it. I think that many of these scholars, from what I read, simply focused on what was the place of the coffee house and kind of dehistoricized it, took it out of history and plopped it down in Europe to try to understand the creation of this new public space. And without taking a moment to think critically about how did we get from there to here? Yeah. Uh, how does the coffee house fit into the history of dining out or public drinking more broadly? People, okay, people have been, there's evidence, especially from much further east along the Silk Road in, in China. So tea houses preceded the coffee house. and people kind of going out to eat. Europeans, we did not start doing that until much, much later on into, the, you know, the 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th centuries. So the coffee house in some ways facilitated that idea that it is acceptable, good even, to be able to have places where we can go out to eat. Supposedly the first restaurant was in Paris. There's an interesting, there's a legend about that. And um, so people, so pilgrims always needed places to stay and to eat. And so convents and monasteries have provided these. And taverns, drinking houses certainly date all the way back to ancient Rome for men, right? But this idea that we can 
socialize over a cup of coffee, etc. That all of that had to be, I would argue, all of that had to be imported from all the way to the, from the tea houses in China through the coffee houses of the Near East to Europe. And and I think that once people got a taste for that, it was just a matter of time before it exploded, right? It went from coffee to the other thing that people would do. This is kind of interesting. And I mentioned it in the book. People in, and my evidence comes from Venice, actually. Apothecary shops were places where people gathered, sometimes just to acquire medicines and other times to talk about the politics of the day. And so these apothecary shops, many of them were often under suspicion by the Inquisition about what's going on in there. Are people talking heresy, um, et cetera? And so, again, it's public consumption, but not quite in the way that we think of as a coffee house. So these apothecary shops also provided a venue from which all of these institutions started to arise. Yeah, you've just sort of alluded to this. My next question was about those anxieties about coffee and about the coffee houses. So they're not universally loved and accepted. Uh, what are some of the those anxieties and how did they uh, come to play in the record that you were looking at? There was never a successful, complete closure of a coffee house that I found. So leaders from Mecca to Istanbul to Cairo, wherever, tried to close them down. It's a kind of universal outrage, I think. And so they were worried about what are people really talking about in there? And I don't know that it was always about men are not saying their prayers. I think it was about, are they talking about me? Are they planning some sort of revolution? Kind of what is going on? What are they talking about? And so we're just going to ban them. We're going to shut these places down in the hopes that people then no longer have a place to gather to talk about that. The Inquisition was, like I said, very suspicious about what was going on, were heretical ideas happening there. Coffee ultimately became acceptable, and the story goes, again, the story, that the pope, a pope, a pope, tried, was offered coffee and decided it was entirely too good to let the pagans keep it. So at that point, coffee became acceptable, but the social institution always just caused people a little bit of anxiety. The other concern, you know, in Islam was it alters, coffee alters the chemical balance in your body. And so there were a lot of debates about whether or not it was haram, whether or not it was forbidden for its chemical properties. And it was determined that it wasn't like wine. It didn't cause inebriation so that it's fine. So coffee itself was fine, was licit, but the coffee house, it wasn't so much the drinking of the coffee as it was. What are people talking about? What's really going on in there? In the last chapter of the book, you bring us into kind of the American present. So what's the history of the coffee and coffee houses in America itself? Does, how does coffee enter American culture? And is there anything special about how it is practiced here? Coffee. Um, okay. So the, in colonial America, the people like Thomas Jefferson would have experienced coffee and the coffee house on their travels to Europe. There's also some evidence that some of the uh, wealthy, wealthier people in colonial America had business ties with coffee plantations. 
So there was that sort of commercial aspect that people were making money off of it. They wouldn't have known about the sociability of the coffee house. And so it kind of crossed, at that point, coffee and the coffee house crossed the pond. And it looked really, really familiar to what was going on in Europe. It was a place where, except with one distinct difference, from what I have seen, it was men and women were welcome in the coffee houses of colonial America. So that was a distinct, that was a distinct difference. But they looked really similar and people talked, and there was a lot of politics that got spoken of in these coffee houses. And um, even talks of revolution. And then there was, you know, kind of, a, should we censor the coffee house if what they're talking about are, are plots of, of revolution? But they looked so, so similar that that's part of the interesting trajectory to me is that wherever coffee houses go, it looks really similar. In terms of people who like it, don't like it, it's a place of socialization. It's a place where we have a certain amount of freedom to talk about what we want to talk about, etc. So I want to say we're different, but we're kind of not. Hey, that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Until the very uh, kind of near end of the book, you don't really talk a lot about the cultivation of coffee plants um, or the labor that has supported it. Though, of course, that's been a source of objections to coffee and chocolate, uh, you know, even up until the present. Uh, so how does that history of coffee intersect with the history of labor and exploitation and colonization? You know, it's interesting that a, a very wise anonymous reader asked that same question. And so that book, that chapter actually came into being because of the gift of an anonymous reader who said the story isn't done and you need to do this. And so I went back and did a little bit more work and what I found was in many instances, people that were growing coffee were also involved in sugar plantations. So they were kind of involved in this plantation enterprise. And I read a contract for, of, of the many contracts, one of the one that sticks out to me is a Chinese indentured, well, I think it's slavery. Well, I don't think it's slavery, right? But he comes over from China to Cuba. And he's hired by a Spanish plantation owner who promises him X amount of food, et cetera. But it's very, very clear that it's, there's virtually no way for him to work off his debt and that he might be working in coffee, but he might also be working on a sugar plantation. That he was kind of at the beck and call of whatever his employer wanted from him. And that's a really common story. That And there were no way there were enough. They had to use the, the local population to harvest coffee, and it's harvested by hand. And that takes a massive number of people, and if you're going to pay them a living wage, you won't make anything. So coffee becomes very much a part of, you see this in, in sort of in Kenya as well and other parts of Africa, coffee becomes part of, it's no different than slavery in the South, quite frankly, Right. People are exploited for a commodity that has devotees everywhere. 
Right. So in that final chapter, you you bring us into the present to fair trade and sustainability and kind of coffee's role in our current global society. Um, and I wondered if you had a sense of the good news and the bad news. Um, what are we getting right there? Um, and what do we still have to kind of be concerned about? If we want to be good consumers of coffee, you know, buy coffee that's good for the environment, that's uh, part of an ethical commodity chain, um, if we're going to be good global citizens who are aware of cultural appropriation, um, what's good out there? So often the story is not good, right? So what's good is I think people are paying a lot more attention to not just how their coffee is sourced, but how their chocolate is sourced, how our household products are sourced. I I think we're just starting to pay a lot more um, attention to those things. And and one one of the things that really startles my students is when I bring in fair trade chocolate versus, you know, your little, your little Hershey kisses, right? And they taste really different, but they said it's so much more satisfying. So the good news is that people are infinitely more aware. When I buy my coffee, I want it to be fair trade. School, um, university cafeterias all over the world are starting to pay attention to where their coffee and their other products are sourced. So that's the good news. There's this sort of wonderful awareness uh, for equity. The bad news is that these products are often more expensive. And so it creates just a new consumer class, people that can afford fair trade and people that would love to, but can't. And that's been very bothersome to me. Like people may really, really want to do this, but a fair trade, you know, to consistently consume fair trade coffee is or can be more expensive. Now, the World Trade Organization says, no, that's not the fair trade organization says that's not necessarily true. But you go to the grocery store and you can't help but notice. And so I, I still think we have some work to do to make these products universally accessible to everyone. What, if anything, uh, has this project changed about your own coffee habits or, or maybe your feelings about coffee? An interesting question. My own feelings about coffee. Well, I'm hyper aware of where it comes from. Um, and I think I was always aware, but now I'm, yeah, I don't even want to buy coffee in a coffee shop unless I know for sure its origin. It's also made me really aware of the other ways that I consume. How do I consume? What am I consuming? Do I really need to be, do I really need all of this? I, I purged my house of, of plastic all to the recycle, I might add. But it's made me very, very aware of what do I need? What do I not need? How can I not be part of the degradation of the climate? How, and, and it became, I teach every other spring, I teach a history of food class. And we spend a lot of time talking in that class at the end about uh, food insecurity and what it looks like to make sure that people are fed, but that people also get paid a living wage for their products and their labor. And I think these are just really important conversations to have, and it won't change overnight, but I'm optimistic that we're on a good path. What's your students' reaction to this material when you teach it in class? Everywhere from I knew that to complete and total shock. And they really run the gamut um, of what they know and what they don't know. But they are hungry to know more. So here's sort of a classic example. 
uh, we were talking about coffee and, and, and also about chocolate. And so one of my students actually went out and found, uh, it's not a podcast, but it's a, it's a, it's a YouTube video. And I think it's done by NPR of men that harvest chocolate in the Ivory coast who had never tried chocolate because they couldn't afford it. And so the interviewer brought them chocolate and they had had it for the first time. And that was absolutely astounding to my students that somebody would, who worked so hard to provide for this, well, for many of us, we wouldn't even say it's a luxury good, had never tried it for themselves because they couldn't afford it. And yet they harvested it every day of their work lives. And so they become they become advocates i think in 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 lots of really important ways for i don't i want to take a look at how i consume and what i eat and what i do and don't need to eat what projects are you working on next uh i have a couple of projects i have one on the medieval mediterranean it's actually a collection of essays and then i am at the beginning stages i should be further along on a book about the merchants themselves, and in particular, the role of women in trade in between the pre between pre modern Italy and the Eastern Mediterranean. And I'm really curious because what I discovered in the research for my dissertation and also for this book was that women they may not have been doing the traveling because generally speaking they did not, but they if a husband if they lost a husband at sea they would um, take over the managing of his business they would hire whoever they needed to hire to do the traveling, et cetera. And so they played a really integral role that I want to explore further. So those are my, and then I think, I don't know, something else on food. I don't know. But something. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. And there's such a, a market, I think, for these single food histories. Um, but of course, as we find out through your book, they're really not, single foods after all, right? They're very bound up into a lot of different histories and related to a lot of other products that move too. Right. And that's another thing that I think the students find, my students and, and hopefully my readers as well, find interesting is that you have to talk about coffee in this larger context. Absolutely. Well, when those books comes out, uh, be sure to, to let me know. We'll check it out again. <laughs> I have to say, I really enjoyed reading your book with my morning coffee uh, for the last couple of weeks. So that thank you for enjoyed. Thank you for enriching my morning ritual. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. And um, we'll speak soon. Thank you very much. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.